And welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. If you haven't listened to Data Unchained before, let me tell you just a little bit about what this podcast is about. Over the last few years, few decades, the paradigm for data access has constantly been changing. We had the introduction of cloud computing, then we went through COVID and remote workers became much more prevalent. And through all of this, data has become more and more decentralized. And we're focusing this podcast on, in this decentralized world, how do you get data to the remote workers, the distributed applications, the different cloud regions and data centers that can make use of it? Data Unchained digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions in making data an asset as a global resource. Today's guest is Ariel Pohorales. Hopefully I got the last name right. Um, Ariel is the head of product marketing over at Rivery. Um, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about Rivery? I'm not sure if it's a household name to everyone who would listen to this podcast or not. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what problems are you solving in this this data world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Rivery is a, a modern data platform. And you mentioned all those uh, decentralized uh, environments uh, earlier in the, in the, int- in the introduction, um, which is often created uh, as a result of a lot of different SaaS tools. River is, is, a, is a SaaS platform that really helps you integrate all your data as it comes from all those different SaaS tools out there, which are really sitting outside of your environment, outside of your network, outside of uh, your control, but holds your data. Um, so River helps you bring that data from uh, there's close to 30,000 SaaS applications out there in the world. Uh, the average organization uh, is using, on, on, on average, about 400 SaaS uh, tools uh, as, as part of their uh, day-to-day operations. So bringing data from those different SaaS tools into their data lakes, into their data warehouses in a managed way, um, that's what Rivery solves initially. And then once you bring the data into a, into your lake and warehouses, it helps you transform the data, model it, um, make it ready for a consumption, whether it's from a, an analytical workload or even in a machine learning or AI use case, maybe even for LLM models creation. Um, and then afterwards, um, it also helps you even push it out uh, at will to different business applications. So really helping you move the data from uh, wherever it is outside of your control into wherever you need it uh, ultimately. Um, that's what Rivery does. Um, and uh, um, an important piece that, that goes along with it is obviously not just being able to connect it from point A to a to point B, but also try to make it in an efficient way. So, of course, uh, orchestrate that process in, in a way that they uh, would take into account different dependencies, um, in a way that they uh, would allow you to uh, control the right timing of, of when the data ought to move and, and also try to not to move it when possible. Um, so... The whole transformation layer, for example, that I mentioned earlier, that is something that Rivery tends to do as much as possible in place, um, in database, using SQL, for example, um, and then kind of avoid that data movement if not needed. Um, so we try to connect kind of the data that you need outside of the outside of your network when you need it, uh, and then when you have it in, in your control, try to uh, move it as little as possible. Interesting. So if you're talking to a business leader who is grappling with that, um, 
tough decision of do you want the new, newest SaaS tool because of the benefits you'll get of it, but this worry that now all of a sudden you have another data silo, you allow them to have the best of both words, worlds where you can use the tools you want and the data silos don't really matter because Rivery is integrating them. Is that a good way to think about it? It is. And, you know, I, th- I think you know, all the SaaS tools, they realize that they need to deliver the data to their customers in, in a certain uh, way. So it starts with in, internal reporting that those tools offer. Um, if you go to Salesforce, for example, which is maybe the most common or popular example for what a SaaS tool is, um, they have a great and very robust uh, reporting system uh, within, within Salesforce. Uh, but at some point, that reporting layer needs to be uh, needs to be um, enhanced together with data from other sources, and this is where that integration problem is coming to, into play. And that's where you need to get access to that data. Salesforce and, and most other SaaS providers these days offer the data through an API. Um, so what Rivery gives is is not just a way to um, a connect to it, but also uh, a consistent way to manage it. Because um, these days, most data engineers are very comfortable. Uh, writing a small Python script that would pull data from an certain API, but then the problems come into play when that data pipeline, that API changes over time, that data pipeline needs to be updated. So that's a lot of management, a lot of headaches, and that's something that Rivery solves uh, seamlessly for, for those data engineers so they can focus on their core business, on their data models, on, uh, on adding value to, the, to their, business, to their uh, main offerings versus kind of maintaining those integrations. Um, and, and by the way, this is true not just for um, not just for APIs of, of external SaaS applications, but also for operational databases, internal or external. Um, those databases also hold very important data uh, that needs to be moved into a lake or warehouse for integrated analytics. Um, and moving that data as well is is a challenge. Again, not very hard initially to establish that first connection, but over time your database evolves, the schema of the database changes. And kind of managing that schema drift is something that Rivery does say seamlessly for you. So it handles that initial migration, which is a challenge of its own because of large data volumes. But then afterwards, also the ongoing replication of the data uh, as data updates and as your, your schema changes in that data source. Before we jump into kind of the meat of the conversation, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your background, Ariel. This is a space where folks are coming from all different parts of industry and um, education backgrounds. So in a data company as the head of product marketing, what is your background, both, you know, work as well as education? Yeah, um, that's, that's a, a very good question. Um, maybe a bit different than the typical product marketing you'll see in, in other organizations. So I, I kind of a, got my education in, in the data space. I learned the uh, information system engineering. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I, my first job was uh, within a large uh, corporation uh, as a data engineer. Um, and doing in-house ETLs and, and reporting uh, processes that they, uh, we had back in the days on uh, kind of a, what would be considered today legacy tools. But they, um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure even my because they've been around for like a few years. <laughs> yeah, it's been 20 years now, so it's been quite some time. But um, you know, I'm not even sure it was titles a data engineer back then. But that's essentially what I was doing uh, in my position T- today. May, the title is data engineer back then. Maybe it was a, I forget why it was uh, data uh, data system uh, engineer or something like that. Um, but essentially, um, um, worked within a, a large a corporation uh, as part of the internal team um, as as a data practitioner. 
Afterwards, I moved to a, a vendor uh, that focused on, on data visualization uh, products, uh, helping uh, to build dashboards and, and analytical uh, workloads, uh, similar to maybe Tableau or Power BI. Uh, a bit more focused on embedded BI, so integrating those uh, reporting layers into other tools, but essentially um, in more in the data visualization space. And that's where I kind of got into a more of a, uh, a pre-sales rule. I led that team afterwards. Uh, it was a, somewhat of a natural move from that sales domain into the marketing world. That's why I got into product marketing. Um, and following that, I, I ran a consultancy, um, a local a subsidiary of a, of a global data consultancy, um, helping customers, uh, advising them on what should be their data infrastructure, data architecture, um, and then afterwards helping them implement those uh, recommended solutions. So I've kind of been, I think, in kind of the internal position on the vendor side, developing the software, and then on the consulting side, imp- implementing different tools. And, and what I like the most, I think, uh, is, uh, is really that innovation that the vendor is able to, uh, to deliver uh, through, of course, uh, the feedback that they, you get from the market and, and from the consultant partners that you have, but really have the control, be the closest to kind of uh, what comes out next and what new KBBs the, uh, the software would, they would provide to their users. Um, so that's, that's something I always liked. And, uh, and so for me, kind of uh, getting back into it with Ferrari was a, was a great opportunity. Um, so yeah, maybe not the classic market here, but definitely uh, uh, connected to, a, um, to the market, to a data trends, and, and to how it should be applied by our users. So that's uh, maybe where I, uh, where I can add more value as a product market here. Makes sense. I have taken a similar career path out of engineering into more on the software side into marketing. So I definitely find that that works well because you understand the technology and the problems firsthand. And then it's a little bit easier maybe to speak to them in your marketing role. What I would like to talk a little bit about, um, when we were doing the prep calls for this conversation, we were talking about a tool that Rivery has put together um, about the seven principles of the data pipeline. And as you were telling me about that and we were chatting about it, it was very similar, I think, into, to a lot of the concepts that Hammerspace, the company I work for, has around you, know, you want to unify data sources. You only want to move data when you have to. Um, you know, having transparency of data sets and all those things. You know, there's different ways to approach this problem, but it's a, it's a singular or set of issues that data pipelines have that um, will make whether you're in going after art, artificial intelligence or mean machine learning or tr- traditional kind of a little bit more um, like business intelligence. Um, I think these are big things for people to try to think through as they're architecting their data strategies, um, the ways to accomplish those those items, the moving only when you have to, having visibility to data sources, um, having a clean kind of gold data set. Um, so let's let's talk through those seven principles that you guys have put together and just walk through um, why they're important in different ways maybe that an architect of a data pipeline or somebody in senior leadership might be thinking about what to ask their organization, how they're handling these items. So the first one you go into, you know, of course you're a SAS tool too, is that correct? At Rivery? Yeah. Okay. So zero infrastructure management. Um, How do you guys pull that off and how, what do you recommend? Yeah. I think I think I heard on on your podcast uh, David Flynn, uh, Hammerspace CEO, has been talking about data shouldn't be 
tied to infrastructure and shouldn't be a mm-hmm. it's not, shouldn't be an infrastructure problem. And and I totally agree with that. Um, it used to be when when I was uh, doing ETLs back in the day, uh, it was all on prem uh, and all kind of tied to the VM that the, or, or the uh, the server we used to work on. So at some point, data volumes grew and and the ETL uh, jobs started timing out. Um, so kind of being able to really leverage um, a lot of what I think Snowflake started doing in the um, uh, data warehousing space where there's separate compute and storage. Um, same thing should apply as well to the data pipeline that moves data into the warehouse or into the data lake. Um, it should really be uh, completely seamless and, and data engineer's role or the, even data analyst role should be, uh, should be focused on let's get the right data point we want, not on uh, setting up the, uh, uh, the infrastructure behind it to, a, um, to get that pipeline moving. Because, uh, again, going back to uh, the proliferation of data sources we have, um, when I was a data engineer, I, I had maybe a, a couple of databases, a SQL Server and Oracle, and, and a couple of Excel files I had to integrate data from. Um, these days, every, every other day, the marketing team comes with a new data source they need to, uh, to ingest, and now you need a new data pipeline. So it's, it's really impossible to kind of keep on managing the infrastructure on an ongoing basis and kind of make sure it scales to the demand of the business. So uh, from that perspective, being able to leverage and really what the cloud offers from that perspective um, is, is key to ensure that you have the ability to consistently deliver on the data streams that the business needs. I think that as I've been looking at the evolution of this market, um, there's this goal to want to be able to use all data in these data initiatives now, where maybe historically it was a subset of your business data or your Salesforce data or whatever it was. And I think the trend that is leading to this, you can't be infrastructure bound because um, the tools are largely in the cloud and the applications, the compute power, and Yet data has, is being generated everywhere, and the organizations who can pull all of their data, structured, semi-structured, structured, multiple locations into a data pipeline, probably will be most successful. Um, and so it's a huge shift, I think, in putting data to work versus just storing it, you know, and having it isolated. And it can't be infrastructure bound in, in the end if, in order to accomplish these goals. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent, and I think this is you know, really in, in you know if you bring it down to a data engineers world or an ETL developer world, this is what kind of created that shift from ETL to ELT. Let's extract exactly. and load the data first into the destination, and then transform it, and that gives you a the option to a um, to move much faster because you don't need to always plan in advance what you'll be modeling. Um, and and the moment that the, the business uh, requirement change and, and there's another question to answer, oh, I missed that field in in my original pool. Now I have to go back to my uh, my ETL process and change it. No, you extract and load everything, and then from there you can transform and model um, the specific uh, um, uh, data sets that you need to uh, uh, to answer those different business requirements. So, um, so yeah, I think I think that's worth kind of emphasizing. So you're suggesting maybe for those listeners who are not data experts that kind of historically the workflow has been ETL, which is exact extract transform load. And you're suggesting that a shift in the mindset to doing this workflow a little bit differently. Now, can you just emphasize that point a little bit so folks understand kind of the importance and how this is a different way of thinking for the data folks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, ETL used to be the way um, people used to to uh, integrate data um, just by uh, extracting it from a certain source. Let's say the source was a um, Salesforce, as, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, so they extract it, uh, they load it to the destination database. Let's say it's an Oracle database, and then, uh, sorry, they transform it in memory in the ETL world, um, and then they load it into their target database. Let's say it was an Oracle database. Um, and, and again, that approach uh, worked well up to a certain data volume. But the moment data volume started to, to grow exponentially, um, transforming all that data in memory was, was impossible. And so data engineers found themselves kind of doing all kind of different manipulations to make sure that those processes don't time out. They had to pre-aggregate the data and then business users only received the aggregate results and they couldn't drill down to the raw data level and, and, and really fully answer um, all the questions when they want to get the, uh, the fine-grained details. So um, what cloud data warehouses such as Snowflake, Google BigQuery, and others brought is the ability to separate the compute from the storage and essentially load a lot of data into very cheap storage, relatively cheap storage in, in S3 or Azure Blob Storage, Google Cloud Storage, um, and then from there process it with, uh, with compute as needed. And so that created that, that uh, facility to really shift to and extract load and transform load where you extract and load pretty much all your data as quickly as you can to the uh, target uh, destination, whether it's a data lake or the cloud data warehouse like Snowflake and, and BigQuery. These days now Databricks as well. Um, and then uh, and then do the transformation as mentioned in place um, using the compute power of that engine. So that's a... a that's really kind of that they, that shift in the process. And, and it solves a lot of problems, not just the ability to uh, process large volumes of data, but also, as I mentioned earlier, being able to really respond rapidly to changing business requirements because you have all the data already available to you. When a new question comes up, it's fairly easy to now um, do a, a simple query and, and maybe model data or even just query it when it's already available in the, uh, in the destination versus kind of now having to go back to your original pipeline, modifying it and bringing more data from the source. Um, so that's a, that's what the ELT is. Thank you for expanding on that. Yeah. yeah. It's a, you know, subtlety in the acronym, but a big deal in the workflow. So I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very confusing because, you know, the term ETL kind of stayed, but, you know, people are doing now ELT for the most part, but it's just, okay, now there's a confusion in the world that we're calling it ETL, ELT. Uh, most uh, modern pipelines would be ELT based these days, but uh, that term of ETLing still remains. So going on and talking about how you interact with the data, speaking SQL and Python, um, I know you highlight that as one of the seven principles. Maybe you can expand a little bit on, I think most people know what SQL and Python are, but you know why you really highlight that as an important point. Yeah, I think you in your question, you actually touched upon the, the most important factor. Most people know what SQL and Python are. Um, and I think that's what really allows um, almost anyone to, to get into uh, running those pipelines and uh, and having control of the data. Um, in the past, when I used to do ETLs, it's, it's a what was not called data engineer back then. Um, then they, I used to use a lot of graphical tools, uh, which offer a lot of capabilities say, with with different kind of components. I used to drag and drop onto the screen and kind of create kind of uh, ETL processes with kind of different a chain of events. Those kind of building blocks I used to drag on the interface. Um, the problem with that is that that required a lot of time in learning those tools. Um, they were very capable, but you know you had to spend a whole week and, and 
certifications and courses just to pick up the tool. Um, and then afterwards, it wasn't very easy for other users to understand what's in it because they had to go into each one of those components and check the configuration of that component and, and understand how it's, it's affecting your pipeline. Uh, and mostly, it, it wasn't very portable. Um, so if I now need to move from one tool to a different one, I kind of had to start again, rebuild my entire pipeline. But if I'm using SQL, everybody knows SQL. Um, so learning a tool that just talks SQL is, is actually very quick and easy. Um, and then if I want to switch to another tool or a different environment where I want to run my SQL code, maybe I'm moving my SQL code from um, my ingestion tool to my orchestration layer, which which is maybe uh, maybe something I need to do at times. Now I can do that very easily. Um, <clears throat> and lastly, uh, so it's it's the quickness, it's the ease of use, um, it's the fact that everybody knows it, and it's also the fact that you can collaborate a bit more around it. Um, so because it's code, you can now use more advanced CI CD capabilities um, and kind of collaboratively uh, develop the code together um, and, and push changes, uh, common things like Git and whatnot. So this, uh, this makes it a, a bit more uh, um, uh, kind of common to, to the data engineers that elsewhere also develops in code and, and is kind of used to the CI CD kind of methods. Um, so for all those reasons, I think more data pipelines ought to speak SQL and um, Maybe the last thing I'll mention earlier was a long answer, I know, but just one more thing I'll mention earlier is that the data warehouses uh, um, and, and the analytical tools that we use on top of those warehouses, Tableau, Power BI, um, and whatnot, they all speak SQL between them. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the ruling language. The modern data infrastructure, um, at least from the analytical perspective, typically um, is centered around those warehouses. And so that's why uh, that's why it's so key for those data pipelines that moves data into those warehouses to speak a SQL as well. Makes sense. And we share a lot of similar thoughts in the development of the Hammerspace technology that this idea of using enterprise standard tools, you know, where is the technology, the code languages, the interfaces that people are accustomed to are going to make these data initiatives move faster. You know, if people have to learn something new or deploy something bespoke, it slows things down. Standards make it much easier to deploy. And, you know, I, I think it's fine. It's interesting that at the different layers of these workflows and these pipelines, um, how that comes into play, you, your next point is about multiple storage layers. And, you know, one of the things Hammerspace does is makes that possible through standards-based approaches versus a bunch of, you know, I have need a specialized high performance tier and a specialized low cost tier. Um, and you're looking at from the overall data pipeline that that's important as well. And maybe you can talk a little bit, you know, we think about mostly about locality and performance, you know, so where is your data? How much does it cost store it? And um, how fast is it to use by applications and humans? Um, I suspect you think about storage layers somewhat similarly, but you may have different um attributes that are important to you and, and as you think about your principles. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely agree with the way you think about it. And, and I think what we see from our customers is, uh, is just the fact that um, it's again, taking it to more of the uh, analytical workloads. Um, there, there is now that, that the concept of giving more um, and it goes along with the decentralized concept we mentioned earlier, but giving more, uh, self-served access to different units in the business. 
Um, and with that oftentimes come the, uh, the choice of, of tooling as well. Um, sometimes it's, it's deliberate. Sometimes it's a necessity based on the skill set of that department and, and team that wants to access and use the data. Um, so we see customers, for example, where the, uh, selected, um, a warehouse or lake house layer in, in this case for the organizations, Databricks, for example, uh, where they have a pretty strong, uh, data engineering team and, and they know how to optimize Databricks very well. Um, and then on the flip side, they have an HR department with very sensitive data that they don't want to expose um, to data engineers. So they want to be self-sufficient around managing the data, but they're not technical enough to, to get into something like Databricks. So for them, the choice of Snowflake is a bit easier. Um, so we find ourselves uh, supporting the same organization with pipeline that sometimes end within Databricks, sometimes end within Snowflake, sometimes just end within a, a, an AWS S3 bucket. Um, because that data will then be served to a, the creation of a, a vector database for LLM modeling. Um, so that uh, that is something we, we started to see more and more of. Um, it used to be that you know you try to bring data into one place and create the one source of truth. Um, and and now which we we see a, a new paradigm where you want to have that source of truth, but in more of a connected way, not necessarily uh, meaning that all the data is in the same exact database or, or warehouse say, uh, to begin with. Um, so that's the way we see it. Makes sense. Yeah. So how does that play into, I think it's the fifth point around operational an- analytics and reverse ETL. How do those, how does that kind of play into that process? Yeah, so that that's slightly a, a different. Uh, there's there's a small distinction there between um, considering that a, a storage layer, um, but what we see is that if in the past what we used to do is bring all the data into again that one database that then would serve all the other applications, whether it was a, the reporting layer, whether it was a external business applications. Um, the way businesses try to proliferate that data to a, to the consumers uh, was either through that tool, um, let's say it's a, it's a Tableau uh, dashboard. Okay, I'm speaking Tableau because it's a very popular and famous tool. So um, you got your, your, your salesperson um, operating most of his day in Salesforce, maybe HubSpot, maybe Outreach, maybe other tools that they, they live in. Uh, and then you ask them to go into Tableau to, to check out their reports and, and maybe some activities that they need to, uh, to take for a day. And those, those reports could be very valuable to them when they try to uh, decide how to approach a certain prospect, for example. But that's, <clears throat> that's just creating another silo for them on, on the consumption layer. Um, so the way this was, uh, this was sold by Salesforce, well, okay, they acquired Tableau, but essentially embedding, uh, embedding uh, those BI tools into the, uh, into the operational layer. Um, but that's not always possible. That's not always uh, an easy integration process. Um, and so what we see more and more of these days is really the, the concept of pushing that data back into operational applications with the insights that you've enriched in your, in your warehouse. So you brought it into the warehouse, you enriched it with other sources. Now you have a good supporting uh, data point to, to help that uh, business user make a better decision. That data now needs to be delivered to them where where they operate, and it could be Salesforce, could be HubSpot, could be NetSuite, could be in Slack. Um, but essentially, they need to uh, to get the data um, in in the place where they uh, they used to work, and and that's again something that we didn't used to see in the past. As a data engineer, you used to finish your work once you 
brought to the warehouse. And then from there, okay, business analysts, you can take it on and, and do whatever you want to do with it. Um, but now, no, you need to go the extra mile and deliver it to to that place, which again, breaks those, those silos, create greater adoption to the data insights that you want to bring to the business and ultimately creates more value to the users. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A more integrated and kind of continually changing process, isn't it? Exactly. As you look at, as you look at, um, the idea of transparency, and maybe you can talk about what you mean by that. Is it about um, data sources and the quality of the data sources, or is it organizational, um, like leadership understanding on what kind of data is? What are you talking about when you highlight the importance of full transparency? Yeah, I think I don't know how many people realize that, but obviously, cloud is not a new thing, and, and SaaS tools have been around for you know, more than ten years now. If, much more than that, but I think the data industry took some time to to jump onto a, onto the cloud, um, and it didn't move to the cloud initially. A lot of it, I think, was because of, of some concerns around a, what would happen once I manage not just a not just have some SaaS applications where I have some some data hosted, but also my my own applications data living in the cloud, and um, and and what would that mean for me? A, a control perspective. Over time, I think data gravity concepts and obviously the, the advantages cloud bring around elastic compute and, and all the things we talked about earlier kind of force the data industry to, to finally make that shift and, and bring data workloads to the cloud as well. But essentially, there's still that, that, a, a, that concern around what happens when I use a SaaS tool to process my data. Where is my data going through? Um, is it efficient? Um, did all my data go through? Um, can I control how it's flowing to a uh, to my uh, target warehouse, um, and and so uh, how do I trust and, and make sure that all my pipelines are running? Because um, data, data, data engineer doesn't want to be woken up at, at two a.m. getting a phone call from <laughs> me, uh, from someone that reports to the CEO telling him, "Hey, the uh, the dashboard is not updated because data is not uh, is not moving." So, kind of just being able to control all of that uh, and see it end-to-end, and, and I think that's a, that's a problem that we've seen with, with some other modern tools that are handling only one piece of your data integration process, um, which, which actually is, is pretty popular. You can see uh, an extract and load tool, which brings data from different SaaS applications into, into a target, and then maybe a different tool that does transformation, and then a third tool that does orchestration. And then you end up having a, a pretty complex a set of tools to manage together and i think a lot of new tools came up as a as a result to to try and help you get some observability of the entire flow from end to end um so just being able to see kind of that process uh, how a how it is flowing through and making sure your pipelines are running consistently i think that that's a key a, a key factor and um so it's uh it's an important layer that is often kind of overlooked initially it's like, okay, oh, I found an integration tool. It brings data from point A to point B. Great, that's all I need. But no, it, it actually, the moment you start scaling, you, you need to be able to see end-to-end where, is, where data is being processed, how much data is moving, um, some metadata about it as well, which, uh, which fields are changing, uh, what, what happened over time to, to that. And, and when there are errors, because at some point there will be, just getting understand, a good understanding of where those issues are happening and how to solve them, so... Uh, without that, it would be very hard to scale your your pipelines. Yeah, definitely. I think that's interesting. That's something I didn't fully understand till just now. So, with Rivery, you have the ability to 
have the different data sources and the different data tools, but you'll have that entire visibility of the flow of the entire pipeline, no matter where it's coming from exactly. in your unified tool. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. I like that. I can yes, definitely um, see the value. Especially once you start applying transformations and you have some dependencies between your pipeline. You know, when, when you do data modeling, oftentimes you want to build your dimension table first and afterwards your fact table. All those dependencies need, need to kind of be orchestrated and, and synced together. Um, and so kind of being able to see where in that chain of processes something failed is, is critical. Um, or if you're doing a ongoing database replications using methods like CDC, um, you know, if you use you change data capture replication fail at some point, being able to decide exactly when you want to pick up that process again uh, and kind of keep on bringing data from that point in time where it failed is, is critical to make sure that your data uh, is consistent and, and in high quality. And, and that's um, that's something that they really goes hand in hand with being able to to run those pipelines at scale. Cool. So I think when I talk to business leaders, I usually think about most initiatives are funded either because they make money or they save money. It was one or the other. And when you think about faster time to value and how all of this that we've been talking to is helping an organization with value, is it around saving operational costs? Is it about increasing revenue streams? Is it both? What kind of value do you see you, that River Re is accelerating? I definitely think it's both. Um, so I think the first one, um, which is maybe an easier one to grasp, is around definitely the, the cost saving of running your, your data processes. I mean, I think it goes without saying, we're on this podcast, everybody knows that they, if you're not data-driven, you're going to lag behind your competitors. And, and so that's everybody's goal these days, been for a long time already. Um, so there's there's a good understanding of data is, data is critical, data is needed. So then there's a question of, okay, how much does it cost for you to uh, to operate your data, data processes? And so um, using a tool like Rivery, you can really save a lot of a, a lot of a, um, effort around building those uh, those pipelines and managing them, which ultimately means savings in, in full-time employees that you would have kind of managing that infrastructure. Um, so you really get immediate reductions around the headcount you would need. And if in the past you need a team of six to eight engineers maintaining complex tools and um, and working hard to, to make sure your pipelines and infrastructure are up and running, now you can do it with a team of, of three engineers, for example. So Big savings around uh, the team size and, and their ability to uh, um, to deliver those those uh, data processes, um, and also as as you mentioned earlier, the unification of those different tools ultimately saves as well in, in the licenses cost of, of multiple tools. Um, when you have separate tools in, in your stack, you'd have to pay each one of those tools for for the margins they need to make on the part of the process they uh, they operate. If you go for a bit more of a unified platform, then you can make some savings around uh, the fact that the platform typically have a bit more of an economy of scale, um, and is typically emphasized where it's uh, where it's making its margins on on a certain part of the process, but not all that part of the process. Um, so that's that's on the cost saving side. But then, I think the the acceleration that delivers to a um, what, what you you mentioned earlier, the time to value to deliver those insights. This is where you can really create new uh, new revenue channels. Um, if you are able to bring fresh data to the right place for the right user, so I'll pick up on the example I mentioned earlier, if you are able to enrich uh, a salesperson or even just a, uh, a sales development rep that is now in, in, in your website, having a 
a chat a conversation with one of your prospects that came to your website, if he's, if you're able to enrich that, uh, that individual with, with fresh insight about the prospect that's talking to him right now and help him really giving more valuable answers as, as they, uh, they, uh, converse, that really can progress your, uh, your ability or that really can increase your, your conversion rates on, on that lead, which ultimately will turn into more business. So, so definitely it's a combination of both. Um, and uh, I think that kind of concept of reverse TL is really becoming more and more critical because of that realization that this is creating more revenue for the business, um, not just savings Makes and efficiency in the operations. Yeah, I think it's for, certainly for me highlighted with whenever I use ChatGBT that often I'll ask it a question or be doing whatever I'm doing with it. And it'll say, just a reminder, my data is from 2021 and then you have the, my <laughs> latest data load, <laughs> you know, and I yeah. think that's something probably a lot of us who aren't data science engineers can relate to that the value of current up to date real time or close to real time data is super valuable and also very hard. Right. And yeah. I think that you're really highlighting that and that, and that will be a competitive advantage as well to, the data-driven businesses who are not just using data, but the latest and most current data as well. Yeah, 100%. How do you activate your data? How do you make sure that data is really available to you at, at the right place in junction where you may need to make the decision? Um, that's 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 the key part and, and starts with making sure, okay, you have the data available to you and, and it ends with pushing it to the, to the right place with the right enrichment. So as we tie up, um, I feel like we should at least mention beyond my reference to ChatGPT, Gen AI, and how that plays into the world. So you've been at this a long time before um, this latest wave and craze around generative AI. Um, do you see that as changing the industry, just continuing to accelerate it? Kind of what do you see that role will be in these data pipelines and how Gen AI is affecting it? Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot of applications where um, Gen AI would, would, be, uh, uh, would be instrumental for, for the data engineering industry, um, specifically focusing on, on data engineering. Um, like many other industries, we, we see a lot of co-pilots tools um, showing up in, in different environments, I think, for data engineering as well, getting like a nice co-pilot that would help you write your SQL faster, write your Python faster, um, better understand the APIs you're dealing with um, to a... Um, and to extract the right data points you want to extract or push into a uh, into different APIs you're writing to, so um, and <clears throat> definitely uh, that's going to be, I think, a, a something we'll see more and more of. It's still, you know, at kind of those early days where people are still questioning how valid the, is the output, or how sophisticated it can get. But I, I think we have clear sight to see that it it will get get to the level of sophistication that's required, um, and there's enough tools in place to to make sure it will help you accelerate without making uh, silly mistakes um so that's that's i think in motion and and, uh, and again some some early solutions out there are already helping um the other thing i, I think that data engineers did need to deal with in the past and we'll see more and more of these days is a uh, they need to not just uh, leverage an ai for their work but also be able to build um models llm models that would help their organizations because it's not just about taking chat GPT, but it's actually taking chat GPT's capabilities and, and applying those to your domain, to your, uh, to your organization's kind of knowledge and creating kind of that mini LLM that's true for your organization. And so they'll need to now manage the pipelines that feed um, maybe vector databases to a, 
um, to build those LLMs. And so that's going to be, I think, a new uh, a ongoing kind of activity that data, data engineers will have to manage. Um, and, and the tools will come with it, tools that will help you better load data into vector databases and, and tools like Rivery that will help you um, get the data to begin with um, into uh, your lake or before it's loaded into the, uh, the vector database. Um, so all of that will, will come together. Do you believe your seven principles will be modified as the whole Gen AI um, craze continues to evolve and you know, the tool, you know everything we've just been talking about? Or do you think they pretty much stay the same, that the principles are the same, it's just the application? Yeah, I want to believe that they, they will. I feel like modern is always changing, right? So I'm, I'm sure some of those things will, um, out of seven principles, probably uh, not, uh, most of them will, will stay the same, but I want to believe that maybe we'll add one more or modify one because of the new capabilities and not just to one the way you apply it, but just because uh, of kind of the breadth of options Gen AI opens. So I'm, I'm sure that they, I'm sure I'm hopeful that we'll create a new principle. Uh, I'm not sure yet exactly what that principle is going to look like. So uh, that's a great question. Maybe <laughs> next time we'll talk, I'll, I'll come back to you for more, uh, <laughs> more uh, grounded question, answer based on uh, what they uh, would do in real life. But uh, I think for now it's a bit too early, but, but we'll probably see it in, in the coming months, years for sure. Awesome. Ariel, thank you so much for taking time uh, to join this conversation and share about Rivery. I'm very interested, as I've told you before, both in potentially alliance work with Hammerspace, as well as the things we're mutually doing to try to help our customers. Um, so I look forward to continuing the conversation. Um, for our listeners, if you're interested in reading this white paper, we will be attaching it um, to the show notes. So if you want access to it, just look at the Data Unchained page on Hammerspace, and you can get a link to the white paper we've been discussing to read through all of this in more detail, share it about your organization. Um, Ariel, thank you so much again. Um, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm-hmm.